Um, do not fear. The, uh, after church last Sunday, I know a lot of us left church and we got news about a shooting at another church in Texas. And I think, uh, I know for me, my instinct was to fear. My instinct was to think about, uh, you know, I, I, I probably do this more often than I should because of the society that we live in where I'm just aware of that sort of thing. But then when it happened at a church, you're just kind of like even more aware, like how would you respond, how would you react? Um, and, and I don't, I, you know, it's important not to dismiss what happened or to treat it lightly, but it made me um, painfully aware of the relevance of this topic, do not fear. Uh, the command isn't only valid when there's nothing to worry about. I mean, the command is for those times where we're tempted to fear. That's what it was built for, do not fear. So it's important that in the midst of tragedy that fear doesn't get the final word for us, that fear doesn't tell us what to do. As we talked about last week, we said that fear never tells us the whole truth. It just doesn't give us all the information. And fear questions the character of God. Um, and so I think it's particularly relevant, and this passage was picked out long before uh, the events of last week, but I think this passage is particularly relevant to what's going on in our society in multiple levels, not just uh, the shooting in Texas. So uh, we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to dive right into what we're talking about this week. So Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 26. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 26. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet one of them will fall to the ground, or not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. It's a good verse. It's a good verse to keep in mind. I want to tell you a story um, more lighthearted than what we were just talking about. The, uh, I, I love playing basketball. I'm not particularly good at it, but I love it. So everywhere I've lived, I've always fi- tried to find guys I could go play basketball with. And it's just usually pick up basketball. Just random strangers. They all know you're supposed to meet at this gym or this place to play basketball. Now, if there's one thing that I can tell you about random collections of guys is that for some reason, when we play any sort of like sport, really anything, things can get a little competitive, And I don't know why it feels like we're wired this way. I don't know. Maybe it's nurture. I have no idea. But it feels like they're just kind of hardwired this way. So you get this random collection of guys, and for some reason, they feel like they're all NBA players with contracts on the line every time something happens, every time there's a foul, or every time somebody says a little trash talker does something they don't like. And so occasionally, you'll get like these serious arguments, and then once in a while, you'll get like actual fist fights. And and it's always exciting. It's rarely me. Rarely me. (laughs) But it's exciting to like, you know, play the peacemaker and jump in there in the middle and hold the guy back like, it's okay, man, it's okay, don't let it get to you, you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Well, every once in a while, like, even me, I will get a little aggravated, but not usually what happens on the court. And let me tell you about a time that I got just a little bit aggravated playing basketball. 
So we had, we had been playing regularly for years with a similar group of guys. There's a changing, rotating cast of characters. People show up, people leave, that sort of thing. And one day, a new guy shows up that I'd never met before, never seen before, but he shows up and he's wearing a t-shirt that has a Bible verse on it. And so I'm thinking, okay, all right, he's wearing a Bible verse t-shirt to play basketball. I don't, uh, whether this is fair or not, I had a certain set of expectations for how he might behave playing basketball. And he uh, managed to drastically uh, underwhelm me with the way he acted. He and this other guy got into an argument, and they started yelling at each other, and it got, it got worse and worse and worse and worse, until the point that they were almost coming to blows. And I was getting, every time something would happen, I'd get more and more mad at the Bible verse shirt-wearing guy. Because guys that I play with know, know I work for a church. They know I'm a Christian. It's not like I, you know, vocalize it all the time. But they know it. It comes up in conversations. They know it. And Bible verse shirt-wearing guy is giving all of us a bad reputation. And I'm like, Bible verse shirt-wearing guy in my head, what are you doing? Do you not understand? Like, there's a bigger picture here. I eventually want to minister to some of these guys. I want to have a good rapport with them. I want to eventually be able to invite them to church and talk to them about Jesus. And you're ruining it for me because you're wearing a Bible shirt and being a jerk. So finally, I got to the point where it wasn't just in my head. I had finally kind of had enough. And that little preacher boy in me kind of rose up and decided, I'm going to do something about Bible shirt wearing guy being a jerk. So there was this one interaction where the guy he had been arguing with like fell down and this guy ran over and just stood over him and was yelling at him, that's what you deserve, that's your fault, it's karma. He said, it's karma. And I was like, Bible shirt wearing guy, do you believe me? You're very confused in your theology. But I had... I had just, I had had it with this guy. So I did not have a well thought out plan because anger doesn't necessarily bring out the logic in most people. But I ran up to him and I like kind of got in his face and I was like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? Stop talking that way. And then I asked this genius question. I don't know why, but I was like, I don't, honestly, I have no idea why this came to my mind. But what I said is, in front of a crowd of people who were looking at this altercation that had been with this other guy, and now was with, you know, little preacher boy Patrick that they all know goes to church, and he's all aggravated now. And I asked him this question. I said, where do you go to church? (laughs) It doesn't even make sense now. I don't... Was I going to call his preacher and be like, you got, a, you got a bad apple, you need to come down and pick him up. He's bad news down here. I don't know what I was thinking. Where do you go to church? And so I'm like in his face as if that's like some sort of mic drop situation. I, it's, it's honestly a little embarrassing. Where do you go to church? And he like paused for a minute and looked at me like, because he was totally caught off guard as you can imagine. Like this conversation had taken a left turn that he had not anticipated. And I said, and he, you know, paused for a little bit and he's like, I don't go to church. Well, my plan of action was now completely gone. Because I don't know exactly what I was going to do, but it had something to do with the train of thought that he goes to church and your church would be disappointed in your behavior. I don't know what I was going to do. I was going to say something like that. And so I didn't have anything now. I had nothing, but I'd created this weird altercation, so I'm sure I muttered something, and then I, then I walked off, and I was like super embarrassed that I had even done any of that. But I was upset that this guy was representing at least Christ in some way, right? He didn't come out and say, hey, everybody, I'm trying to be like Jesus and then act that way. But he was wearing a shirt, and I kind of felt like, man, we got to hold this guy to a higher standard, right? So I was a little upset, a little frustrated, but kind of embarrassed, you know, a little embarrassed about the whole situation. So as I'm leaving uh, the gym, I get done playing, I'm leaving the gym. This guy had gone. 
but evidently had gone back to the locker room, and as I'm leaving, he comes out at the very same time, and we walk out the doors together. Now, he's not upset with me, interestingly enough, uh, probably because he's so caught off guard, like, what's this guy going to do? But he's not upset with me, and we're walking out, and it's that awkward silence where you've had some sort of altercation with somebody, and now you don't know what to do next. You don't know what to do about it next. And so I don't, I don't say anything. I don't know what to do. And we're walking out kind of silently. I like look at him and nod. You know, I'm almost, honestly, because this is my personality, I'm such a people pleaser. I'm almost at the point where I'm going to apologize to him, right? That's how bad it was. And then he says, you know when I told you I don't, don't go to church? I was like, yes, I do remember that. It was a... One of my most embarrassing moments today, you know, I remember that. He goes, ah, that's not true. I do go to church, but I could tell where you were going with that, and I didn't want to look bad in front of everybody. And I was like, well, <laughs> honestly, you already look bad in front of everybody. That's not, you know, that kind of, that, that horse is out of the barn. But it was interesting to me that it was so important to, in that moment, not look bad that he was willing to lie, at least to some degree, about his relationship with God. Now, I mean, it's not like fundamental. He wasn't denying Christ or anything like that. But he was willing to at least obscure this, this, this uh, premise of a relationship with God in order to not look bad. Now, I think his instinct is in a lot of us. In order to not look bad, we will do a lot of things in life. In order to not look bad. He said literally the words, I had to say no or I would look bad. We really don't like to look bad. You know what I mean? We really don't like it. We don't like people to think we're wrong about things, which is why we will argue a point long after it's clear that we're wrong, long after we've even been given empirical evidence to the contrary. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like to feel judged. So we don't like to do anything that will bring judgment upon us. We don't like to look like we've failed in something. So often we won't try to do something that we're worried about failing in. We don't like to be criticized. We don't like to be shamed. We don't like to be embarrassed. So often, instead of doing anything that will risk any of those things, we just play it safe. And I think generally in life, maybe that's okay. But when we come to our public relationship with God, we run into dilemmas. I wonder, I wonder if there are times where we are not as bold or as faithful or as upfront and honest about our faith as we could be or should be because somewhere inside us there's a fear about how we'll be categorized, how we'll be judged, or how we'll be criticized. I wonder if anybody else has experienced that. I'm People Pleasers Anonymous right here. That's me. That describes me. I have been uh, faithless when I should have been faithful for fear of the crowd. I wonder if sometimes we even get confused or intimidated into believing or acting like we believe something that we do not because we're afraid of that criticism or shame or embarrassment that could come being on the wrong side of popular opinion. I wonder if it's possible that even our own, uh, you know, our own Fundamental core ideas are shaped by those worries. Because if we said what we thought or if we expressed what we thought, then could it cost us some relationships? Could it cost us some opportunities? I want to be really careful here. Because I am not, and this is important to me, church, that you hear this, I am not talking about the ridiculous, made-up controversies that sometimes Christians get themselves embroiled with. 
Sometimes we fight some sort of culture war that other people aren't fighting, and we're just kind of our own, like, you know, tilting at windmills, like Don Quixote. Nobody else is arguing those points. You remember the red cups at Starbucks, people getting upset about those? As if Starbucks had some sort of agenda against Christmas. And for some people, that's the most important thing in their faith is that they defend Christmas. Come on. There's better things that we can spend our time doing than fighting some ridiculous culture war with Starbucks. I'm not talking about things like that that we sometimes get ourselves so worked up about. If someone says happy holidays to us, we're like, oh, why do you hate Jesus? Relax, okay? <laughs> Don't worry about that kind of stuff. There's more important things. And honestly, sometimes political controversies that for some crazy reason we've allowed our politics to get enmeshed with our faith and we get all upset about this political thing and thinking it's a faith thing and it has nothing to do with our faith or our Christianity and sometimes makes us act in ways contrary to our faith. I'm not talking about those issues. I'm not talking about defending some sort of pseudo-Christianity that we've constructed because of our politics or because of our, our culture. There's enough real stuff to deal with, people, than to get worked up about some of those things. But it seems to me that the church might be called to be more bold. And I am preaching to one Patrick Doherty here because I know my tendencies. Now, I know there are people in the room who think like, well, I don't care what people think. I'm bold. I say what I think. I say what I mean. They don't really. They like to think that about themselves, and they like to express that about themselves, but they don't really. In fact, if you have to tell people that you don't care what people think, you care what people think because you had to tell them that. You care what people think. And I think a lot of us struggle with that. And when it gets entwined with our Christianity, we've got a real dilemma. Let me give you an example. Um, Recently, a pretty well-known preacher uh, who had written a book went on a daytime talk show to to promote the book, try to get more sales, try to get more people to be aware of his his book. And during the course of conversation, the, the talk show, the hosts weren't religious particularly, so they asked him some pretty pointed questions having to do with religion. One of the hosts, there's multiple hosts, one of the hosts says, what does your church teach on cult- controversial cultural issues? Like a very broad question. Like what does your teach, church teach on all the current controversies? And he's like, uh, well, uh, let's hit the brakes there a little bit because it's a no-win situation, Right? If you're in what could be a hostile environment to like literally just come out and say what you think about things could really, it could, it could go poorly, right? So I get that. I get that he was like, mm. Now the host, he tried to like weave his way around answering and he tried to like give a bunch of platitudes that we sometimes do when we don't want to actually be pinned down and the host could tell. And so the host was like, no, you tell me, why don't you tell me, does your church believe it's a sin to have an abortion, And the guy was like, you know, deer in the headlights, kind of like, oh boy, now what do I do? Now, this preacher, this religious leader, and abortion can be a complex issue. I don't think it's as as complex as we let it be, but it can be a complex issue. Uh, But this preacher was like, "Uh uh-oh. And I don't know what was going on in his mind, but I imagine that in his mind he was a little worried about book sales. I, I imagine he was probably a little worried about looking bad on national television, I, I, I imagine he was a little worried about getting into an argument that was kind of unwinnable in front of a, a, a live uh, audience. I imagine that. So what he said, he did some dodging and weaving verbally, but then eventually he said, you know, I think everybody should just live to their own convictions. Now this is a preacher who believes ultimately, broadly speaking, that abortion is a sin. And when he got pressed on it, in front of a crowd that might disagree with him, he said, I think everyone should live to their own convictions. Which is essentially saying nothing, right? Now, 
you may need to figure out a way to have a grace-filled answer. You may need to figure out a way to say something uh, bold that is also loving and humble. You may need to figure out how to do something, but it seems like you should have a better answer than just live to your own convictions as a religious figure. It seems like that you should have a better answer than that. And you may disagree with me in the audience. You may think like, well, that's probably the right thing to do. I think living to one's own convictions is kind of the problem with the world. I think that's the problem. And if you tell everybody to continue doing what they want to do, you're continuing the problem. Now, I get some of you may feel differently about abortion, and we're not trying to talk about specific issues here. But I think he could have said, look, it's tough, and people are in difficult situations. But I think he might have even been afraid to be sided with a certain group. Because a lot of people are anti-abortion, but they're not pro-life. They're anti-abortion, but they're not pro-helping out single moms who need help. They're anti-abortion, but they're not pro-adoption. They're just anti-abortion. And maybe he didn't want to be singled out and categorized with that group without being able to defend himself and explain himself. Maybe he wanted to have some nuance to his answer. I get that. But instead of doing any of those things, he just said one should live to their own convictions. And I think maybe that what he was doing was being pressed by the crowd for something specific and he swung and missed. Now, I'm not at all saying, I was watching this interview, I am not at all saying I would have done better. I am not at all saying that I would have had a better reaction. <laughs> I probably would have fumbled it much worse than that. But it made me feel like, I, can, I get it. I get what his struggle is. I get it. I get the fear of being painted with a broad brush. I get the fear of people hearing one thing and assuming a bunch of other things about you. I get the fear of being judged and criticized and shamed. I get it. I understand where he's coming from. Because we are trying to follow Jesus, there are times it will put us at odds with the culture at large. It's inevitable. Discipleship will often be met with disapproval. Discipleship will often be met in disapproval. And as obvious as that statement is, I think that's still sort of an epiphany for some of us as we're navigating culture. Like, you're upset at me trying to do the right thing? Discipleship, doing the right thing, will often be met Following Jesus will often be met with disapproval. Following Jesus often means you're going to feel judged. That's just the nature of it. Jesus said that himself. Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because you are following me. Blessed are you when people do those things because great is your reward in heaven. Last week we talked about fear in a general sense the most talked about command in the Bible. Uh, But we didn't talk about like the specific, like what God most warns us about not to fear. And most often this command is directed at do not fear people. Do not fear people. Certainly he means don't fear, you know, natural disasters and don't fear not having enough and don't fear me not being able to provide for you. But more often than not, the command not to fear in Scripture is about natural, or not natural disasters, it's about... um, is about people. We fear natural disasters, I guess. It's about people. So the question is, how do we pursue a relationship marked by boldness, a relationship with God, discipleship with Jesus, marked by boldness and not defined by fear? How do we do that? So uh, this has been a long introduction, and I'm, I'm going to make the, the points I want to make shorter, balance it out. But I just want to offer a couple of uh, uh, um, concepts that Jesus gave us in terms of not fearing people, that passage that we read to begin with. Um, How do we pursue a discipleship marked by boldness and not by fear? 
Number one, we have to remember, this is Jesus, Jesus tells us, number one, uh, that Jesus, he, that God, will validate us. God will validate us. In the passage that we read earlier, he said, Do not be afraid of them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Paul wrote, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? We're familiar with that. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. So you'll have people who, tell, who in, believe they're, they're compelling you to do something moral that you think is against what God would want you to do. So they think they're doing the moral thing, you think you're doing the moral thing, and at some point, God is going to make it clear to everybody what the right choice is and was. But there are times where we want to be validated by people so badly that we will go along with what they think the right thing to do is and deny what we believe God is calling us to do. Because we're looking for our validation from the crowd. We're looking for our validation from people. You will have people tell you, don't forgive that person. Because if you do, they'll think they can just get away with treating other people that way. Don't forgive them. You'll have people tell you, don't be generous. They don't deserve it. They'll just waste it. Don't be generous. You'll have people tell you that. Despite the fact that you think this is the right thing to do. Real quickly, let me tell you this story. The the, the setup is, is an amazing story in itself, but needless to say, I was in the middle of an intersection in downtown St. Paul, and, and I'll tell you why at some point. It's a great story, but a homeless guy came up to me and said, can you, can you spare some money for food? You know, uh, okay, uh, I don't, ha- I, I, I don't want to give you money, but I will buy you food. There was a little restaurant right there on the corner, and I'll buy you food. So I walk inside, I order a hamburger, and I'm getting ready to pay, and the lady says, I wish you wouldn't do this. The lady I'm paying, I wish you wouldn't do this. Order a hamburger? No, buy that guy a hamburger. What, what do you mean? They're just, he's just going to think that he can go up to some other stranger next time he's hungry and ask for food. Boy, I, 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 wish, you wouldn't, I wish you wouldn't do this. And I'm like, I, how do you respond to that? I didn't even know what to say. I was like, mm, sorry? Uh, <laughs> sorry that I'm giving your establishment money to get what your establishment provides so that I can do what your establishment is built to do for some, I don't know what to do. And, and this is literally what she said. I'll let you do it this time, but don't come back in here and do it again. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to respond exactly. I was like, I don't know all the circumstances. I believe she was probably a little jaded. I, she, she'd probably had lots of experiences, lots of insight, lots of wisdom and knowledge that I don't have. But given the information I had, given what I believe Jesus would ask me to do, is if someone says I need food, I should do what I can to provide food for them. Amen. That's, I didn't have any more information than that. And maybe there's more, maybe there's layers, maybe she could have given me any more, but I'll let you do it this time, but don't come back in here and do it again. All right. <laughs> I can't worry about that. I can't seek to get my validation from people who don't share the same values that I do. My validation and what is right and wrong has to come from God. Sometimes we may have to lean into foolishness in order to be faithful. Sometimes we may have to lean into looking foolish in order to be faithful. Second thing that Jesus reminds his disciples as he's telling them to be bold in the world and not to fear people is he reminds them this, I am the voice that matters. On its surface, look at this next verse, verse 28. On its surface, this verse is not very comforting. Do not be afraid of people who can only kill you. Be afraid of me who can kill you and send you to hell. Oh, I'm going to sleep well at night now. Thank you, Jesus. That's 
very comforting, very helpful. More than one occasion, and this is like more of a conglomeration of events than it is one single event, but I remember uh, my, uh, my kids doing homework and then turning it in and then they get a bad grade on it. And we're like, well, uh, they turned it in late, or they, tur- they did something wrong, they didn't follow the instructions. And we're like, why didn't you do the, way, the homework the way your teacher told you to do it? And they said, well, I didn't listen. Okay, well, that's a problem. Not a bit. Okay. And then I asked this friend what the teacher had said, and this friend said to do this. So it's the friend's fault. And we say, do not listen to the one who can give you bad information, Listen to the one who can give you a grade. If you need to know the information you need, ask your teacher. Don't ask your siblings. Don't ask your classmates. Ask your teacher. They're the one with authority. And I believe what Jesus is saying is God's voice is the one with authority. Uh, The worst someone can do to you if they're not validating you is kill you. That's the worst they can do. That seems pretty bad to me. But in Jesus' economy, in terms of value, in terms of life, in terms of eternity, he says that's not the worst thing that can happen. Don't listen to that person because the worst thing they can do is kill you. You need to listen to God because he is the voice of ultimate authority. He's the voice that matters. And when he says do this, you need to do that. Don't listen to that person. They don't have any authority over you or over your life. God's is the voice that matters. Fear tends to amplify the wrong voices. I can still remember the specific insult a first grade girl gave me while we were on the playground at recess at Harris Elementary in Eugene, Oregon. I can still remember what she said and how she looked when she said it. One person has said this, and I have thought about that for years. Fear tends to amplify the wrong voices. And when we listen to fear, those voices that she would not be listened to get amplified. And those are the voices that we listen to. Those are the voices that we follow. The third thing he says in this passage, I will sustain you. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. A very real fear for first century Christians is that their faith could negatively impact their actual livelihood, right? If you go to your boss and you say, hey boss, guess what, I'm a Christian, probably not a ton of consequences. Could be, I suppose. I don't know your boss, but probably not a ton of consequences. It probably is not a big deal. He's like, okay, good for you. That's nice. Go on with your life. But in the first century, it could, it could negatively impact your livelihood. It could cost you your job. It could cost you your financial security to admit this. And Jesus is trying to help his followers remember, like, I'm the one that's going to take care of you. If you have to choose between following me and keeping your boss happy, guess what you should do? Uh, It seems obvious to us because we don't face any of those sorts of fears or those sorts of persecutions, right? I thought this. I thought, what do modern American Christians that live in the Twin Cities have to worry about? What persecution do they have to worry about? Starbucks is going to have a green cup this year. What do we have to worry about? We don't have anything. I was talking to some of the teenagers uh, on Wednesday about this idea. Like, I asked them the question, has your faith ever cost you anything? Because I was expecting, nope, it hasn't. (laughs) Nope. And one girl said, yeah, lots of friends. Tell me what you mean. 
And they said in their school, go to a public school system, when they, they have lots of friends that they no longer have relationships with because of their faith. When they started bringing up their relationship with God, these friends shunned them. And I was like, what, really? In, in 2017, in, in Woodbury, Minnesota, this is happening? Now, you may not experience that, but the kids experience some of that. And we have to remember that our, our God says, I will sustain you. I will take care of you. You're worried about maintaining a friendship. I got your back. I'll help you out if you're faithful to me, if you follow me. I was so surprised at that, so surprised. But we shouldn't be surprised that discipleship might come at a cost. It was the one thing Jesus was clear about discipleship. It will cost you. In some cases, it might cost you your life. And so when, when it costs us, we're like, oh, I didn't actually think it would cost us. I read an article not too long ago about a soldier who signed up uh, in like 1999 and then ended up being deployed uh, to either Iraq or Afghanistan. And he was so upset. He was like, I didn't know when I signed up I was going to have to go to war. You signed up for the military, buddy. I mean, that's always a pretty inherent risk. So if Christians are like, I didn't know I'd have to give up anything to become a Christian, <laughs> that's the thing Jesus stressed over and over and over. I want to I ask us this question as we wrap up. Last week, we asked the question is, is how does fear hold us back from deeper discipleship? I want to ask this question for you, because I, I know it's relevant for me. I think a lot of what I'm talking about today is, is, is me, because I, I am a people pleaser. That's my, that's my kryptonite. People get critical or upset with me, I'm like, oh, don't do that. I'll do whatever you like. It's worse than persecution if somebody's like, hey, Patrick, I'm upset. No, if somebody comes up to me, some of you are going to do this now. If somebody comes up to me and is like, Patrick, I'm a little upset. We have to talk. Like, can we get together next Tuesday? No, you have to tell me what you're upset about right now. I cannot wait. I will die in the next 24 hours if you don't tell me. I need it to survive. I need your approval to survive. But, but I think this is a really relevant question for me is, how does or how is fear holding you back from bold discipleship? How is fear holding you back from bold discipleship? Because I think a lot of us want to fly right under the radar as Christians. And when those moments come up where whether we want to or not, we're kind of like drawn to the surface and our faith is challenged and our, 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 our morals are challenged, uh, we're like, mm, whatever we can do to kind of continue to fly under the radar. How is fear holding you back from bold discipleship? The command of Scripture is clear over and over and over again. Do not fear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we're so grateful to be able to gather together here. And Lord, we know that we're in a room where pretty much everybody uh, shares in common so many ideas and so many thoughts and so many values and it's safe and, and it's easy to express and it's easy to worship and it's easy to be uh, encouraged uh, and encourage one another here. But I, I, I know, God, that we are in situations that you have called us to that require more boldness than we have exercised to this point in our lives. And I pray that you would help us understand the moments we need to be bold and the moments we need to be quiet and the moments we need to stand and the moments we need to sit. God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom. But God, I pray that when you call us to those moments, that we would not be cowardly, that we would not be weak, that we would, that we would lean on you, that we would be faithful in our obedience and, and our trust of you in order to sustain us and to validate us and to listen to your voice in those moments, God. We, we pray for those opportunities as uncomfortable uh, as they may be and as uncertain as they may be, uh, but we pray, God, for your spirit to lead us, to guide us, to give us boldness when we need it uh, in order to live out our faith in this world. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.